And as we are gathering, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. And for those of you at home this morning, if you're there with your children, I just want to give you a uh, PG-17 warning. We are dealing with the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I uh, want you to be aware of that. Uh, we certainly don't intend to be graphic, but um, the subject is certainly not for young children. So uh, PG-17 warning for the sermon this morning. So as you turn to Genesis chapter 19, I trust that you are most of you are familiar with this story. If not, you will be shortly. But as you uh, turn there, let's, let's just read together um, down to verse 11. We are going to go down to verse 29 this morning and just get a sense and a flavor for what's happening here in the book of Genesis. So beginning in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening... And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And then they said, This one came to sojourn, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal uh, worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, would you grant to us great understanding an insight and application of this ancient scripture of something that happened 3,000 years ago and bring it to light for us today. Lord, encourage us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story, of course, began earlier in the previous chapter, and there were three men who came to Abraham's house, as Pastor Mitch had shared with us, and two of those men were angels, and one of those men was uh, a theophany or a Christophany. It was an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he came with those two angels. And they interacted there at Lot's tent. And uh, you can go back and listen to that last week if you uh, missed that. But it was, of course, a great message on uh, Genesis chapter 18. And now what happened is 
um, Lot had, excuse me, um, Abraham had talked with the Lord about the situation in Sodom and the angels had revealed to him their will and their intent that they were going down to Sodom. And if you look back at verse 16, you know, your Bible probably has uh, subtitles in it. You'll see Abraham intercedes for Sodom. And I know that often when we go through that passage of scripture as Abraham, it appears to us as negotiating with God. You know, Lord, if you find 50 righteous in the city or 45 or 40 and he works his way down to 10, uh, we, we tend to think he's negotiating, but in actuality, he's interceding. And I wanna take a moment just to highlight that this morning, the, the ministry of intercession. Abraham belonged to that select company of God's people known as intercessors. Individuals like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, the apostles, and our Lord himself. In fact, our Lord's ministry today in heaven is a ministry of intercession, according to Romans 8.34. Charles Spurgeon said, if they, that is lost sinners, will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent your praying. Do they jest at your exhortations? They cannot disturb you at your prayers. Are they far away so that you cannot reach them? Your prayers can reach them. Have they declared that they will never listen to you again nor see your face? Never mind, God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him and he will make them hear and feel. Though they now treat you despitefully, rendering evil for your good, follow them with your prayers. Never let them perish for lack of your supplications. You see, Abraham was a model for us. And I'm sure that we all know someone who desperately needs to know the Lord. Or maybe there's a prodigal who's running from the Lord. You see, they may be able to outrun you and me, but they can't outrun our prayers. They can't outrun the throne of God. Continuing with that thought, an intercessor must know the Lord personally and be obedient to his will. He must be close enough to the Lord to learn the secrets of the Lord and to pray about the things that matter to the Lord. The Lord's words to Abraham, I know him, mean I have chosen him and he is my intimate friend. Abraham knew more about Sodom's future than the citizens themselves, including Lot. It is the separated believer who shares God's secrets. God, in fact, said in Ezekiel 33:11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then finally, intercessors must have compassionate hearts and a deep concern for the salvation of the lost. No matter what their sins may be, we must care and we must pray. Now, interestingly, as Abraham was interceding for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, we believe he, of course, had in mind his family. And before we get into the passage, I want to call to your attention why Abraham may have stopped at 10 and didn't go lower. And I believe it's because that there were 10 members of Lot's family there in Sodom there was Lot and his wife, and they had two sons, according to verse 12. They had two married daughters, according to verse 14. And we know that they had two unmarried daughters, according to verse 8. And if you add all that up, it comes out to 10 people. 
So it would seem, of course, that uh, Abraham, as he was interceding and speaking with the Lord, that he was pleading for the lives and for God to spare the people that were in his family that were of his nephew's uh, Lot's family. So as these two angels, verse 1, come into Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, as we've been following along with Lot's life, we see that there is a steady progression in his life. Unfortunately, it was in a downward spiral. In Genesis 13.10, he went from, uh, he was looking toward Sodom. He had pitched his tent toward Sodom in Genesis 13.12, and he went to living in Sodom in Genesis 14.12, and then losing everything when Sodom was attacked. You may remember a few weeks ago as we were in chapter 14, that Abraham had to rally his servants and go uh, to war and fight and rescue Lot and bring him and his family back. And in essence, Abraham ended up rescuing the citizens of Lot and they were able to go back to their way of life uh, as it was before the war happened with the kings uh, where there were five against four. And now we find today Lot is now sitting in the gate of Sodom, indicating that he was a civic leader and he was uh, accepted among the elders of the city as someone who was regarded as one with influence and authority. And so these angels came in, and of course there was a custom in these cities in this day that travelers or sojourners would come in in the evening before the gates closed and uh, they would just be hoping, hoping to be inside the walled city so that they would not be exposed to crime or, or harm during the night. And so as these two travelers, a.k.a. the two angels, came into the city of Sodom in the evening, <clears throat> Lot was sitting there in the gate of Sodom, and when he saw them, he uh, immediately went to them and he uh, bowed to them and he invited them to please come into his house to spend the night and wash their feet and give them a a good meal and all of that. But these two strangers said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. They were refusing Lot's invitation. They thought, well, we'll just spend the night in the open square. Again, keeping in mind, these are angels and not ordinary men. But Lot, verse 3, insisted strongly, so they turned to him and entered his house, and then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, something to note here is when these angels and the Lord Jesus appeared at the tent of Abraham, um, Abraham had Sarah prepare a meal, and then he went out and got um, a calf, and they uh, had a great meal together. Here, um, already, before we even get to the end and talk about what happened to Lot's wife, we find that Lot's wife is apparently not on board with what's happening with with Lot bringing these two strangers into their house because she is not there helping. Lot himself is preparing the meal all by himself. In verse 4, now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. So now we begin to understand a little bit of the wickedness that had been going on in the city of Sodom. It Note here, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So it would seem that all of the men of this city were homosexual. 
they were all entering in uh, to this, this ungodly practice. And as they came, and notice it says both young and old, you see this, this influences every single generation, number one. Number two, I want you to be aware of the fact that God has always placed a great responsibility upon men to bring leadership to the family, to the cities, to uh, civic government. And here we find that the men of the entire city have become corrupt and they are involved in this uh, terrible sexual practice. In Ezekiel 16, we find God later condemning and rebuking the great sin of Judah in the latter days of the divided monarchy. And he compared Jerusalem to the ancient city of Sodom saying that they were like sisters. Then God compared the sins of Sodom to the sins of Jerusalem at that time in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. And he said this, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So Ezekiel gives us some insight as to what was happening in the city of Sodom. They were wealthy. They lived with abundance. They had more than they needed, and they had, as it said, abundance of idleness. They had a great amount of free time. And you may have heard the old saying, it's not in the Bible, but the principle is that idle hands make for the devil's work. And so these men of this city, rather than being busy and working and making a living and doing honorable things in their spare time, were dreaming up wicked things. And we'll read in just a moment in Romans chapter 1, how the Lord explains this terrible tragedy of this particular kind of sin. And in verse 5, they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now, if you have an NIV, it actually says, Bring them out to us that we may have sex with them. And that is, of course, exactly what they meant. I have a couple of things to share with you here. First of all, the black rain of violent sexual perversion had fallen on, on all the men of Sodom. Moses' choice of words here is deliberate. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Sexual orientation aside, such violence was anathema to all oriental cultures. The violent depravity of the Sodomites was extraordinary. Lot's home was encircled by a vast, gibbering mob of lusting men of every age howling for perverted satisfaction. That's what's happening in this moment as these men have gathered around Lot's house. Now keep in mind, Abraham knew about this. Abraham prayed, he interceded for this city, and he interceded for his nephew and for his family. One commentator shared this, and I thought it particularly important for us to consider. Are we tortured by the sin around us like this? Truthfully, some Christians are not. They watch the same movies, the same television as everyone else. 
They witnessed the same debaucheries, impassively without even a hint of indignation. But at least Lot felt something in this situation. So verse 6, Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Now Lot, of course, is appealing to them. But notice how Lot addressed them. He says, not so, my brethren. Lot is identifying himself with the people of the city of Sodom. You may say, perhaps this is a negotiation tactic. But I think it's identifying the fact that Lot had, in his compromise, become somewhat comfortable in this city. Verse 8, see now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now certainly it was customary in this time that when you brought a guest under your roof in the, uh, the vein of hospitality that you would want to protect them, that it meant not just pro providing for them a meal and a bed, but it meant that you would be protecting them as well. But uh, for Lot to go the extra mile here and probably in a sense think on his feet and kind of reach for how can I appease these men and make them go away, he offers up his daughters. And one person said it this way, Lot placed the sanctity of his guests and hospitality above the sanctity of his family. In other words, Lot should not have done that. Offering up his family for their carnal pleasures. I cannot imagine as a father of three girls having ever done that under any circumstances. In a, in a word, Lot was a conflicted soul. At the same time, both offended and allured by Sodom, he liked the prosperity, the comforts, the culture, and the prestige, but he was worn down by the filthy lives of lawless men and perpetually tortured in his righteous soul by the deeds he saw and heard. As such, he is the prototype and paradigm of so many believers today. He is not a caricature, a joke written on the pages of iniquity. In other words, Lot had compromised to such a point that he had become comfortable and he had come to the place where these men have come to his house to take his guests and to do this vile thing to them. And then in verse 9, they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, referring to Lot as he came in to dwell among them in the city. This one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down his door. So when Lot, as we talked about the progression of pitching his tent towards Sodom and, and moving towards Sodom, moving into Sodom, and now sitting in the gate of Sodom, he has eroded his witness. He has eroded his influence by all that he has done. And he now stands here before these men as an elder of the city, pleading for the lives of his guests and there were a few commentators who said that the likely outcome would have been, had these been ordinary men and had they taken them and had their way with them, that they most likely, because of the brutality of what they would have done to them, would have ended up murdering them. 
And now Lot, living in this city, no doubt this had happened before. I'm sure this was not the first or the only time that something like this had happened. They pressed hard against Lot and they said, we're going to do to you exactly what we're going to do to them. Lot no longer had influence over them whatsoever under these present conditions, and they resented the very fact that he had judged their intended action to be morally wrong. This is almost inevitably the ultimate outcome of a compromising relation between carnal Christians and the world. You see, folks, we have been called to be salt and light. As people who say we have a relationship with God... We are to be different by the very nature of confessing that I'm a Christian and that I know Jesus and that he saved me from my sins. In fact, I was reading last night and I went to sleep and normally I go to sleep and just wake up in the morning. But at 3 a.m. I woke up and it's very unusual for me to do this. And this, this, this whole thing was just churning uh, in my soul and I was thinking about Abraham and Lot. And, and, you know, we know as we look at Abraham, he was not a perfect man, but he was a man who worshiped God. He was a man who was building altars and seeking the face of God. Yet Lot, we never find it recorded of him that he had this kind of relationship with the Lord. We are told that he was a righteous man. We'll get to that in a moment. Peter tells us this in his epistle. But it's interesting as we think about this and we think about Lot and the compromises he had made. You know, normally when someone begins to go off track in their relationship with Christ, it usually begins with they stop reading God's word and they stop getting alone with the Lord and they stop praying. They stop seeking the face of God. And from there, it's all downhill. And I say that this morning to, to encourage you with something to ask you, first of all, what is the state of your relationship with your Savior? Do you love him? Do you know that he loves you? Do you understand that he has saved you from the flames of hell? Do you understand that he has delivered you from judgment? Do you understand that he did all this because of his love for you? You see, his holy wrath, his righteousness had to be satisfied. A holy God looking at an unholy people, sin, missing the mark, demands that God judge it. And the only way around God judging sin is the righteous blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. You see, in Christ we are made whole. By faith, the righteousness of God is imputed to you and me. We are told in Romans chapters 3 and 4, talking about the life of Abraham. By faith, it was imputed to him, and he became righteous through his faith. And so it is with us. And let me ask you this morning, where are you in your relationship? Are you walking with him? And if you aren't, don't look back and beat yourself up. Start today, right now. Sit down and say, Lord, give me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Lord, I want to be like Abraham. I want to be like Moses. I want to be like the apostles. I don't want to be like Lot. Even though God in his great mercy and his incredible grace delivered Lot and saved him and pulled him out of the fray, 
when in fact he probably should have been judged for his sin, but God had mercy on him. And that is the way God is. God is merciful. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6, six through 9, it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, that is God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, and then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And this passage in Peter, he gives us insight three times. He calls Lot a righteous man. Boy, God views righteousness way different than I do, than we do. Righteousness, as I just mentioned, is imputed, it is granted by faith. And we are told here in Peter's passage, as the Holy Spirit has given him insight, that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul. You see, God didn't call Lot to go to that city to have a ministry and to evangelize. Lot went there because of the, the draw of the flesh. Remember, if we go back and just read, starting back in chapters 13 and 14, and read about Lot's progression. Abraham was a man of faith. Lot was a man of the flesh. And following the flesh as a believer is always a recipe for disaster. We will end up in a place where like Lot, maybe we don't ultimately deny our faith and compromise, but we, we water down our witness and we come to a place where we have no influence in the world. But as we are about to find out, Lot had no influence with his family. His compromised testimony had compromised his influence with his family. Evidently, Lot's muffled testimony and the fact that he did not run with the Sodomites or participate in their wicked deeds offended them. Peter said much the same as we just read about. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Little has changed today. Sinners, especially people involved in these kinds of sins, are offended because you do not give hearty approval to their actions. And in their eyes, an absence of approval is unforgiv unforgivable judgmentalism. So because we don't agree, because we're not tolerant and accept what people define as okay, and maybe according to man's law it's okay, but according to God's law it is not, we will be judged as being judgmental. But the men, verse 10, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. This is referring to the angels now. Now, before we read the next section, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1 in your Bible, verse 26, and we're going to just read through that passage and just let it speak to us about this situation. Romans chapter 1, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, 
men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So I'm not going to teach that passage, but that passage is itself a commentary on what we are experiencing here in Genesis chapter 19. So these two angels pulled Lot back in after his failed negotiation with the men of the city. And verse 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. The Hebrew word here suggests a uh, blinding flash of light. And uh, as I was reading about that, I thought about a flashbang, if you're familiar with that, that a SWAT team will often use. I'll throw that in and kind of set off a, a bang and a flash and then disorient people and it causes your hearing to temporarily go. Um, it would seem here that this is similar to what the angels did and they, they basically threw this flashbang out and caused these men to now stand outside the house in disoriented confusion. And then the men said to Lot, now they've created the diversion and they're buying time and they said, have you anyone else here? son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city. Take them out of this place. This is probably the moment that Lot realized that these were not mere men, that these were angels. And again, it's interesting. When uh, the Lord Jesus and the two angels came to Lot's tent, excuse me, to Abraham's tent, it would seem that he recognized almost immediately who these men were to get to this point, and now he's just sort of coming to the realization of who these men is a spiritual lack of awareness because he had compromised so much in his life. The Lord has sent us to destroy this place, verse 13, we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. Now, as we think back through Genesis up to this point in time, remember the people of the earth had gotten so wicked that God had to judge the earth through a flood. And of course, we cover that as we went through uh, the, the situation with Noah and the hundred years he spent building the ark and getting ready and then the flood of judgment coming and wiping out every living person and every animal on the face of the earth except for those who were uh, provided for or delivered by the ark through that flood. Now we find God here having to do a microcosm of judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And certainly this wickedness existed in other places in the world at that point in time, but in this particular place, in these two cities, it was highly concentrated. And notice what the angels say. The outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Man, 
I wouldn't want to be living in that place. And yet, this is the place that Lot chose to pitch his tent. This is the place that he looked at and said, this seems like a good place to live. We're kind of city folk. Let's go there and and live in this place among these people. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. What a tragic remark because we will find out as they are sent out of the city that these two families are left behind. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters, the two who are living in the house lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, do you get the sense here that Lot, something was going on in his heart and mind? I don't know if he was confused. I don't know if he didn't believe them. I don't know what it was, but he wasn't taking what they were saying seriously. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now, these two angels are so serious about what they need to do. And they obviously have a timeline from God by which this must take place. And they grab these people, two angels, two hands, four people, and they grab them and literally drag them out of the house outside of the city. And they say, go, get out of here. So it came to pass in verse 17, when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, very important, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. So what he's saying is this, and as we know something about the geography, this was the southern end of the Jordan River Valley. This is down by what we now now know to be the Dead Sea. And there were mountains on both sides. and, And these angels are saying, right now, run for the hills. Go to the mountains and get out of here. And as soon as you're there and you're safe, then this judgment is going to come. And what they're saying to them is, Leave right now. Take nothing. Leave. We can't do anything until you leave. I want to just put a little comma here for a moment and point to something we're going to cover in a few moments just to get this going in your mind. That this situation of God rescuing Lot and his family out of the, out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah before he brings judgment is a type, it's a picture, it points to the rapture of the church, and we'll understand that in a few minutes. So in verse 18, Lot said to them, please know, my lords. Now, whenever you have someone saying no to the Lord, saying no to an angel, it's not going to turn out well. Indeed, now, verse 19, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Now, in this moment, Lot, having realized that these were angels and having realized that God is doing something here, and these angels having taken them by the hand and drugged them outside the city and giving them, I mean, they are having a personal message of 
urgency given to them by these angels from the Lord, get out of here now, hurry, go, stop delaying, that he stops to literally negotiate and say, well, I don't really want to go to the mountains. I want to go somewhere else. I mean, this is the, the low that Lot has sunk into. This is the, the place that his compromise and that his cold-heartedness toward the Lord has taken him. I don't want to go to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. In other words, that the command of God and the obedience to the command of God for him is optional at that moment. And that is a dangerous place for us to be. See now, and he points to a, a city out on the plain. This city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there, and my soul shall live. And he said, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little or insignificant. Now, Zoar was a part of the plain that was going to get destroyed in the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what one commentator had to say. Lot's whimpering speech astounds us because he first acknowledged that he had found favor or grace in God's eyes and that God had kindly spared his life. And then Lot went on to state that he doubted God's ability to preserve his life in the flight to the mountains. Unbelievably, he had the nerve to ask God to send him to Zoar, which was a mini Sodom in itself. As Kidner, a commentator says, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. In other words, he very quickly was thinking in that situation, I don't want to be told to go away and go into something unknown. I want to go to something I know. How about that city? That city has elements of this city, and I would feel more comfortable there than I would in the mountains. Wow. God was giving him a command. God was delivering his life. He was sparing him. And yet in that moment, he said, no, I still want some of what I want, God. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he, that is God, overthrew those two cities, excuse me, overthrew those cities on the ground. Now there are some who have studied this happen, and some have described this because of the the brimstone and all of the elements left behind uh, with a, a judgment of such intense heat that it exceeded that of the heat of a volcano. Some have even suggested that perhaps this could have rivaled a nuclear explosion because of the intensity of what happened when God literally rained down out of heaven uh, brimstone and fire. Now, when we think about this, this is the only time and the only place we find in the Bible that God rains down out of heaven fire and brimstone in judgment upon a people who have turned their backs on him. You have to understand that this was incredibly severe. And while we understand that all sin is offensive to God, sin is sin, and sin is what caused uh, Jesus to have to come 
to come to the cross to pay the penalty that we might have a relationship with God. There is something from the point of view of the scriptures, and we don't have time to go into it this morning, but as we look at Leviticus and we look at Exodus, when God, he says that this sin is something that is in his eyes, that, see, it mars the image of God. And see, God created us in Genesis you know, 1, 2, and 3, as we study that, to be his image bearers. We are created in his image. And sin alone mars the image of God in us. But when we resort to unnatural sexual practices, which this talks about and which Romans chapter 1 talks about, God looks upon that with a great disdain. And it was Billy Graham who said during his lifetime concerning the United States of America, if God does not judge America for her wickedness, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you realize that the United States of America is the number one purveyor of pornography around the world? And we purvey these kinds of things, these kinds of acts. And these things are out there for people to just Google and dial up and just watch them anywhere on their phone, on their tablets, on their computers. And, and, and there's, of course, there are certain places where these practices are legalized. And this is what caused God to rain down fire and brimstone upon a city. And yet we know the day is coming when God will bring his judgment to bear upon the earth. And that should, in a sense, all the more give us urgency in proclaiming the love, the mercy, and the grace of our great God for the sin of mankind. Yes, even these kinds of sins which detest and abhor even God. Now, as Lot and his wife and his two daughters are being led out of the city, remember there were 10, now there's four being led out of the city, so six have been left behind. Six have been burned up. They lost six family members that day. There's a passage in the New Testament that comes together here that I think helps us gain some understanding. Speaking of Lot's life, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Do you understand that's what happened to Lot here and his family? That they got out by the skin of their teeth. They lost everything. They lost six of their family members, but they were delivered so as through fire. As they were walking and getting out of the city, the fire of God was coming down in judgment. And as it were, if you'll pardon the expression, their backsides were getting scorched as they were escaping the judgment of God. But, verse 26, his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, the angel had said very clearly, hadn't he? We just read that. He said, whatever you do, go and don't look back. The language here would indicate that she not only looked back, like she was, not that she was beside him and looked back, 
but that she was lingering as they were hurrying, as they were hastening to get away, Lot and his daughters, that she was dropping back. She was falling behind. And there was a little bit of distance and space between her and Lot and the daughters. And then she stopped to look back and she became a pillar of salt. And we don't know from this passage what happened to her, but we're going to find out in a moment as we'll look at Luke chapter 17. Jesus explains what happened to her. And I tell you, the best commentator in the world is Jesus. So he will explain what happened. So we'll come to that in a moment, but let's finish the passage and then we'll go to that, that section. But consider what had just happened in their life. They'd lost their family. They'd lost their home. They'd lost everything they had and that they had worked for these number of years that they had made their home in this city. And Abraham went early in the morning, verse 27, to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham. What did he remember? He remembered Abraham's intercession. He said, God, aren't you righteous? Wouldn't you deliver for just a few righteous people? Remember, he had interceded for 10. God delivered three. Seven passed away. God in his graciousness and in his mercy did deliver. He remembered Abraham. He heard the prayer of Abraham. And let me encourage you with this. Your prayers matter. Your prayers matter. God hears. And for whomever you're praying that family member, that loved one, that one who's so distant, the prodigal. Keep praying. Don't give up hope. God does hear our prayers. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So these last couple of minutes, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17 to consider the famous expression that Jesus spoke where he said, remember Lot's wife. So Luke chapter 17, Jesus will explain this situation about Lot's wife turning and looking back and being turned to a pillar of salt. Luke chapter 17, verse 24, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the son of man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. 
I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, the other left. What's he talking about here? First of all, I believe Jesus is talking here in this passage about the rapture of the church. Second of all, as he says... Uh, as we consider this, and he talks about Noah, and he walks back through this, he says in verse 27 and 28 that there will be sort of an attitude on the earth, and I believe by implication here among the church, where people are doing business as usual. We get up, it's Monday morning, we turn the crank, we go to work, we just do what we do, and we just keep living life as we've always lived it, and we seek our comfort and we seek our possessions, and we do all the things that we do. But as we go along, you see, there's no awareness. There's no understanding of God in the life of these people as he's describing it, because certainly as in the days of Noah, certainly as in the days of Lot, they had no idea the judgment was coming, even though the message was given. Even though Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, we're told, was there preaching for a hundred years, even though Lot, by the little bit of righteousness he had, was preaching something. You see, he had a little bit of light. He had something there. God still regarded him as a righteous man. Abraham, of course, was a man who was righteous. He had a lot of light coming out of his life. But even in a very, very dark place like Sodom and Gomorrah, you have to, to think that Lot's little bit of light still made a difference because even in the moment when they had surrounded his house, they said, we are tired of this man judging us. So there was enough of something coming from his life, you see. And so at likewise, it was all, as it was also in the days of Lot, you know, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, on the day that Noah and his family got into the ark, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, you see, that points to something that God was delivering before judgment would come. Let me point you very quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that talks about the rapture of the church and that uh, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Then in, in chapter 5, a few verses later, 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore let us not sleep as others do, let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. What happened to Lot's wife? The language suggests that she looked back with longing in her heart. She was looking back at what was being destroyed by the judgment of God because she never wanted to leave in the first place. She loved what was there. She loved her life in Sodom. She loved her home. She loved everything about it. And by way of analogy, let me say to us this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Paul said it best to us in the book of Philippians, this one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I press forward to what lies ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What lies behind is over. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we are saved, if we are marked by the blood of the Lamb, if Jesus has made a difference in my life and yours, then let us not look back. Because what happened to Lot's wife is she looked back with longing. She didn't really want to go. She didn't really want to be delivered. She didn't think there was anything for her to be delivered from. And thus, she was turned into a pillar of salt. And that day, out of the 10 people of the family, seven escaped, and as we'll find out next week, two of them, three of them, still not quite there because of what happens in that next chapter. So this morning, remember Lot's wife. Where are you? Where am I in all of this? Where are we in our relationship with God? Where are we in our walk with him? Do we realize, as, as the apostle John told us in, in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us? This morning, do you understand? Do you have any sense of the love of God in your life? He loves you, he loves me, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, that we should not have to go through the wrath of God. You see, these things are a type, they're a picture of what's coming at the time of the end. And we will be delivered like those who got in the ark with Noah, like those who were delivered, uh, Lot and his two daughters. We will be like them if we obey the Lord, if we heed the Lord, if we listen to the Lord, if we walk with the Lord, if we are in love with the Lord. Listen, ask the Lord this morning to cultivate in your heart a desire, a hunger, and a thirst to walk with him so that you aren't looking back. You know, the world has a strong pull. Sometimes I'll hear a song on the radio from my days of BC before Christ. And I'll hear that song and immediately, boy, I can just sing along with it. Man, it's right there, isn't it? The world, the flesh, and the devil just crouching and waiting to draw us back. But let's forget those things that lie behind and press forward to the things that lie ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you for your love, for your word this morning to us. God, we call upon your name. We cry out to you. We ask you, God, to be merciful and gracious to us. And we pray, God, that for those of us that perhaps our hearts have grown a little cold, that you would fan that flame and draw us back this morning. And for those of us, Lord, who, who love you and we're in a good place, then we praise you, Lord, and we just trust that this was an encouragement to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that we, like Abraham, might be an intercessor that we might be serious about the days that are in front of us, that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and that we, Lord, would not give up, but that we would press forward and realize that you are our exceeding reward and our great prize. And we look forward to that day when we rise to meet you in the air, and we will so be with you forever and ever. Lord, for those this morning who perhaps 
uh, don't know, they're unsure if they know you, if they have a relationship with you, then we ask for them that this moment might be their moment of coming to you, that they would come to the gracious and the merciful God who delivered Lot and his family. And Lord, as it were, you, you grabbed them by the hand and you drug them out and you told them to flee. And Lord, this morning, that's the same way. That, that is the good news of the gospel. You're dragging us by the hand and you're telling us to flee the wrath that is to come by believing in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that many would call upon the name of Jesus and be forgiven and be saved and be delivered and be able to be with the, the throng of the saints around the throne of God in heaven on that great day when we are all there together. And we look forward to that, Lord. We, we proclaim this morning, Lord, that's our destiny, that's our hope, that's what we're living for. We are not living for here. We're not living for retirement. We're not living for an easy life. We're living for Jesus Christ. Lord, show us what all this means and how to apply it to our lives. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's rise and sing a song to the Lord.